Would you grab your Bibles and turn to John 16? We're going to read 5 through 11. 16, 4. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You may be seated. So we have joined in in these weeks with Jesus and the eleven as they are walking from the upper room at the end of John 14, going to the Garden of Gethsemane. On this walk, some of the most vital things ever spoken about our faith and about who God is and our relationship with Him are said. So He speaks about the true vine. Eleven times He speaks the word abide, calling us to abide and remain in three ways. Abide in Him, abide in His love, and abide in His words. He speaks about loving one another and laying His life down for His friends. He will talk to them about the world's perspective of him, that the world has hated God from the beginning when sin entered the world and began to dominate the world system as a hatred of God, and then that turns toward the people. And then he closes 15 in talking about that there's a help in the midst of that, and that help is the Holy Spirit. That as we walk in a world that doesn't understand God and so sometimes reacts the way it does antagonistically toward God and toward his people, we have a helper to help us. So he speaks about the Holy Spirit, and then he came back last week to the same theme about this is what they're going to do to you. You're going to be kicked out of synagogues. You're not going to be welcomed by the world. Some people will think that they're doing a service to God when they kill you, and they're going to do these things. And then he's now going to come back to the theme of the Holy Spirit. So the next couple of weeks, we're going to be um, looking at unique aspects about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so the second part of verse 4 that we read a while ago said this. Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And so there's a great shift that is taking place with the 11 now in regard to what is about to come. So he didn't in the very beginning talk about, okay, I'm about to die. Um, let me tell you how the world views me. He didn't do this in the beginning. They might have gone, whoa, wait a minute. And so they weren't ready for that in the beginning. Now they have to be ready for it. They're not going to have any choice about this. This is on the doorstep. His arrest, his betrayal, his death, all of this is about to come. And it's also about to come to them. And so he's got to say some things to them in the midst of this. And so what he's saying now is going to have an immediate impact upon their life in just the next several hours. And so they weren't ready for these words until now, and so that's why he is speaking them. But isn't this not like him walking along, sharing his heart, pouring out truth, helping people who are wrestling and have sorrow in their heart, trying to figure out, what do I do 
with a moment and everything that is going on. Here he is pouring out eternal truth, eternal words to those he calls his friends. So at this point, we just read of their walk toward the Garden of Gethsemane, they are not filled with joy. Their heart is sunk. All of this theme about hatred of him, what's going to happen to them, and they're He's been telling them, I'm going away and you're not going to see me. And where I'm going, you're not going to be able to come. And so all of these things have kind of filled their minds as they are walking. And so there's a real heaviness in the group. And irregardless of what they are feeling in the moment and the sadness and the sorrow of their heart, Jesus is going to press forward to tell them exactly what they needed. And so let's join the walk again as they're heading to Gethsemane. And look at these things. And so I want to talk out of verses 5 and 6 beginning. And I want to talk about being careful to not get lost in our emotions. But focus on the glory of God. And that's what they should have been doing. They sh- they've been with Jesus enough to kind of know that, boy, He tells things and says things. And they seem to always come true. His words are trustworthy. And so He's telling us these things. And while they're heavy... We need to trust Him that He's telling us this because they will be true. But their humanness, we can all relate to this, sometimes overtakes us. And we lack perspective in the moment about what to do about how we are feeling and what we need to see. So look with me again in 5 and 6. He says, But now I am going to Him who sent me. And none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now they're not asking again. They have already asked this twice on this night. At the end of John chapter 13, Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? You get to John chapter 14, Thomas asks, Lord, we don't know where you're going. You keep talking about you're going somewhere. We don't know. And he says, yes, Thomas, you do know. I am the way. So if you want to know where I'm going, I'm telling you, I am the way. And I am the truth, and I am the life. And so at this point, they're like, okay, we're not going to ask this where question again. Though they, Jesus is wanting them to ask this, we will see about that in a moment. So their question has been, where are you going? But I want you to notice this, and we can be like this as well. We must put ourselves in place like that, because we are like them at times. They are only looking at Jesus' words from the perspective of, what they mean to them, they have not stopped to think about what is he saying in regard to what it means to him and what the impact would be. They're not asking the question, okay, you're telling us you're going away, so what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? What's the result that's going to come about all of this? And they get to the place where they're so introspective of themselves that they're caught up in the sorrow of their heart in regard to the words when they could have had a different perspective on this night. That they have come to know that every word that Jesus has ever told them is good. It's for their good. And so the fact that he's saying these phrases again, that I'm going away, and you're not going to be able to come where I am, but when I go away... I'm going to send a helper, and the Father's going to send a helper. They should have recognized in the moment, or could have recognized in the moment, these words are for my good. I don't really understand them all, but these are for my good, and I must embrace them in the moment. But sometimes it's hard, isn't it? When our emotions take over, and we're in a situation, and it seems 
that there's not an out to it or there's any kind of solution. But on this night, none of them is asking, why is this going to happen? What's the, what's the result of this, though he has been telling them? And so he says to them at the beginning of verse 5, but now. There is a whole new meaning, a whole transition, a whole new direction that is going to take place. And so they could have been asking this, but sadness is so taken over that they're not asking any questions. And I do want to remind us this morning, we ought to be as Christ followers, good question askers of the scripture. We should ask God and seek God and ask the right kind of questions to dig deep and to find out things. And as they're walking along, they have the opportunity to do that. And so Jesus is telling them on this night that they're going to have a helper who will help them not just in their sadness, but in the days ahead in a world that doesn't understand God and will not understand their message. They will have a helper who will help them in all of this. And so, and again, they don't really fully have a whole idea of what's coming, though Jesus has been telling them about this. But everything that's about to come, everything that he's been told, telling them, is for their advantage. None of it is bad. It is all for their good. They just needed a fresh perspective. And so he says, but now I am going to him who sent me. And I love that. Please notice this. What is he saying when he says, now I am going to him who sent me? He's going to be victorious through the cross. The cross is not the end for Jesus. He's already speaking it there. I am dying. Yes, I've been telling you I'm dying, but I'm telling you I'm going to him who sent me. I am going back to my father Jesus in this moment walking with them it's confident that the cross is not it now he will be overwhelmed in a couple of hours in the garden he will sweat drops of blood he will plead with the father over the task that he's been entrusted with and he will say each time nevertheless father not my will but your will be done and so he's got confidence here but now I am going to him who sent me, and hear the confidence that's, that's there. And then he says the phrase, he says, and none of you ask me, where are you going? They were so caught up in how they felt in the moment that they didn't ask him for any more information. They are focused on what they're going to be missing. Jesus is not going to be there. That none of them is asking, how's this going to go for you, Jesus? How can we stand with you in the things that you have been telling us that are coming in regard to the religious leaders. They're just shocked in the moment, overwhelmed in the moment, and more questions don't come from their mouth. Peter's not even asking any more questions. Mister, i got to talk all the time. i got to say stuff and put my foot in the mouth. He's not even asking. He's so overwhelmed as well that he's not asking questions. And so verse 6, Jesus gives us insight to why there's no questions. But because I have said these things, and it's plural, not thing, but things, all of these things he's been telling them. That they're going to be hated, that Jesus is hated, that they're going to not be welcome in the synagogues anymore. All of these things that he's been telling them, he says, sorrow has filled your heart. Probably was a bit overwhelming in the moment. I mean, these are heavy words that he's been sharing with them. They can sense from him that he's pretty serious about what he's communicating. There's a heaviness on his heart as well you can go back to john 13 and 14 you can you can sense that from him and so he says because i've said these things sorrow has filled your heart two things have brought about the sorrow one is 
he's going to leave them and they're not going to be able to see him anymore. So that's filled their heart. And then they're also sorrowful about that this following him is really going to be costly. It's going to be costly to Jesus. It is going to be costly to them. And so in the moment, they lose perspective. Have you ever lost perspective in life for a period of time? I have. I've raised both my hands and my legs and whatever I can raise. We've all lost a little bit of perspective in things that come to us. It doesn't mean that we don't love Jesus and we don't love the Word, but sometimes we don't surrender our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our circumstances to His Lordship. And if we would do that, we have the help that we need to make it through in those moments. So there's an issue of perspective that they need on this night. So he's told them that he would be gone from their lives, but listen to this. He said, I'm, I'm going to be gone from your life, but he would also not be gone from their life. So yes, he would die. Yes, he would rise from the dead and they would see him. And yes, he would ascend and he would be gone. But they were about to have the greatest blessing take place in about 40 days. The Holy Spirit would come and would indwell them and they would continue in this relationship in a new way in a more advantageous way is what Jesus is speaking here. Is it was going to be good for him to go away. And so they should have looked at these words and got, oh, they're heavy. And Lord, I don't understand this. Can you help me understand a little bit more? Can you, can me t- can you let me in on, on what you're feeling about this? Sorrow has so filled their heart. That if, if you'll remember, and we'll get to that in, at some particular point in time. They go to the garden with him. And what do they do? Three of them are invited to go in a little further. And what do they do? They sleep. In his hour of deep need, instead of watching and praying, that he tells them to watch and pray, they fall asleep. And he comes back and says, man, are you sleeping? Wake up. You need to watch. You need to pray. You need to be ready. And so, so they've just lost some perspective of the night to not really know what is happening and taking place. And so nobody's asking any kind of follow-up questions to Jesus to ask why this is to their advantage. They just wanted to hold on to their pain, nurse it a bit. We can do that. Nurse it a little bit. And not focus on why he's going away and asking a little bit more about that. This is always the case. Jesus' words on that night and in the room this morning next week, 10 years from now, in our past, his words were never spoken to discourage us. They were always spoken to encourage us. So every word that he's speaking on this night was not to discourage them. It was to prepare them, to encourage them that what was coming in the days ahead, that he would give them the help and the power and the perspective that they needed. So these words, again, their sorrow has filled their heart, but that was not the design of the words. It was to encourage them to be ready. What happens sometimes in our life, I know this can be with me, when I'm so self-absorbed in my own life, I lose sight of God's bigger perspective of some of the things that are happening and taking place in my life because I can just only see myself. And sometimes it's easy to amplify our issues and not see the blessings in our life. As troubling as this night is for the 11, as troubling as it is emotionally for Jesus as well, this is a night of blessing. The intended purpose of Christ's coming is about to take place. 
Yes, it's horrible that he will be betrayed with a kiss. But our rescue comes because of all of this. So though it is a heavy night, God's initial eternal plan for our rescue will happen because of all of these things. And so again, His words are meant to encourage them to walk through this and and to see that this night and even these words, this will be a blessing. And He will speak about the advantage and the goodness that will come because He will go away. Now for the eleven, they could have never imagined when they were boys. Their parents could have never imagined where they were growing up and raising these boys that when they got older they would be invited to walk with the Messiah. This was not on the radar. This was not on the calendar. They weren't going to get a ding on their phone. Okay, this is when it's going to happen. I mean, this is an incredible blessing that has come to the eleven. And I love the reality that they are real life examples of faith. Watch this. That moves from intimacy or infancy, infancy to a place of deep maturity. They are great examples of that. Clueless wonder sometimes. You know, we, we, we sometimes we kind of smile at they just don't seem to understand, and he's telling them, he's telling them. But they move from this place of in, infancy where they don't understand things to a place where they literally lay their lives down and give their lives up for his glory after he is gone. And so the right perspective comes when you and I faithfully walk in obedience to Christ's words, not just trust our emotions in the moment. This calls us to a long walk of obedience. This is the true way of developing a heart for God and arriving at a biblical worldview about all things. So a biblical perspective that they needed, that you and I need today, comes as we follow Jesus' words in trusting obedience. So he's telling them all of these words to their advantage, for their good, to encourage them, not to discourage them. And so now he says something that's probably even more shocking to them. Look at seven. So let's look at the second thing. Let's talk about the advantage of his leaving. So he says the word, nevertheless. In other words, even though you feel this way, I've got to tell you the truth. And that's what he says there. Nevertheless, regardless of your emotions and sorrow of the moment, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's been telling them this. Jesus would leave them, but they were to embrace and cling to the promise that when he went away, he would send the Holy Spirit to them. And for the rest of their lives, the Holy Spirit would be so many unique things in their lives. His indwelling presence would be with them, and that indwelling presence would be a continual reminder This should also in the room be for you and I today a continual reminder. The indwelling of the Spirit in our lives is a reminder that Jesus is alive and that He is sitting right now at the right hand of His Father interceding for us and every bit of that is for our good and to our advantage. It is what we want to happen. It's what needed to happen 
and it is good. We know this today. We should rejoice in this today that we are indwelt by God's Spirit because of our salvation and His work. And it reminds us that Jesus is alive and He is with His Father in great exaltation. And the Spirit would ever be their constant companion for the rest of their lives. Now they had, for us, we only know this side of the cross and resurrection. They know life with Jesus before the cross and the resurrection, and they know life with Jesus after that. And so they had this unique perspective of literally walking with him and then walking with him through the power of the Holy Spirit in the Spirit's ministry in their lives. But let me address this. Their condition, our condition that you and I can have, and what do we need when sorrow has so filled our heart and we don't have the right perspective in the moment? What do we need? And I believe verse 7 tells us that. So Jesus uses the phrase, don't, don't, Again, every word's important, nevertheless. In other words, he's saying this, even though sorrow has filled your heart and you're not asking any more questions, you can't see how any of this is good. You're discouraged by my words instead of encouraged by my words. Here is what he says to them, and this is what we need. We need the truth from Jesus in these kind of moments, not man's truth. They could have stopped and talked about all this stuff that Jesus says, and they're going to talk about this next week. They're, next week we're going to look at it, they're like, okay, what is, he, what is this thing that he says, in a little while you will not see me, and yet in a little while you will see me. And they're like, okay, what in the world is he talking about? And they're wrestling with all of this. And when they talk with one another about that, instead of asking him what that means, they don't get God-centered answers. Guess what they get? Man-centered perspective. And so when you and I are overwhelmed in our life. There are all kinds of places that every one of us in the room this morning can run to for answers. But the best place to go, their best place on this night is to tug at his robe and say, can you clarify? Can you give me a little bit more perspective? Help me understand what you're speaking about in this moment. And so Jesus is not going to get stuck up in their sorrow. He's going to speak into their sorrow. And he's going to tell them, Nevertheless, I know you're overwhelmed, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you what you need to know to get you through your emotions and your feelings and where you are right now. And he tells them, What I'm about to tell you is going to make your sorrow be a little lighter softer and it's going to bring a little bit more freedom to you and so nevertheless i tell you the truth now he's already affirmed this back in john chapter 8 if he says these words in john chapter 8 verse 31 if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you what free so on that night same words would have brought freedom in the moment, maybe not fullness of understanding, but it could have brought freedom in the moment. What do you and I need most when our hearts are troubled? We need the truth. We need to be told what the truth is. And so Jesus does that. In the midst of their sorrow, he tells them the truth. The truth becomes this present remedy in our lives to the confusion 
of the moment. And it centers us on what is real. And what's real is God and His Word. So what we need in these kind of overwhelming moments is we need the truth from Jesus, not man's perspective of the truth. Have we not had enough of man's perspective of the truth? Just look around at our culture. We had enough of that. We need Jesus' perspective. Here's the second thing. We must, in those moments, trust what he says, even though it's confusing. We have to trust. Have, you, have we not all been there? Well, we're wrestling with something, and we know God is at work, but we, and we, we sense that God has spoken. He's given some direction and leadership to our lives, but it still seems a little bit confusing. God, I really thought I was supposed to move here. I was supposed to take this job or I was supposed to do this or God, um, we, I, th- this thing. And it may not have yet been resolved and we're, seems a little bit confusing. Did I go down the right path? Did I make the right decision? And we must, even in those moments, if, if we know that it's clear God has led, that we trust Him in those moments even when it's confusing. So he says to them, trust what I'm telling you. I know you don't understand it now. It is to your advantage. That word advantage means good. It is for your good that I go away. Now, they could have stopped and said, are you kidding us? How is that good for me? These last three years have been unbelievably good. So how can it be good for me that you are going away? Well, It's good for them that he's going away because Jesus said it's good. And that's enough. If they would trust, even in the midst of the confusing moment, it would help sustain them to know that when he speaks, it is for our good. It is always right. It is always righteous, no matter what he says. And so I must, in this moment, embrace what he says. They didn't know it yet, but it will be far beyond what they could have ever imagined of what it was like to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, they come to know that. And in a sense, do you notice what he's saying here? That you and I live, in a sense, in a better time than the 11 did. It is for your good that I go away. Because if I don't go away, then you will never be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So in these moments, we have to trust Jesus' truth as the only truth, not man's version. We must trust what he says, that it is to our advantage, even when it may be confusing. And a third thing he tells them is this, is that they are about to experience a transition of ministry. And a transition is going to move from Jesus being on the earth, doing the ministry, to now the Holy Spirit being present, doing this great ministry. And so he says, at the last part of verse 7, For if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. There is no indwelling of the Spirit if Jesus doesn't go away. Now, I want to point out the personal nature of all of this. Again, he's walking with them, his friends pouring out his heart, eternal truth being shared with them, and there's a lot of you's in here. I tell you the truth, he says. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. And I will send Him to you. 
deeply personal, this leaving of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. And I don't know where any of us would be in our lives today, be it in regard to direction and peace and comfort, if the Holy Spirit was not present with us in every moment of our lives. The transition from Jesus to the Holy Spirit allows the presence of God to be in every Christ follower at the very same time. Just look in this room today. A little over an hour from now, this room will be full of people. Every one of them who have come to faith are indwelt houses, little temples of the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus didn't go away, then nobody in the room would have the Spirit. We wouldn't have this unity this morning, this sense of God's presence being here today if Jesus didn't go away. And so they, they, they have to shift to his perspective. And so that's why he says, regardless of the sorrow in your heart, I've got to tell you the truth. You need to embrace what I'm telling you. It is to your advantage that I go away. Thirdly, I want to talk about now what Jesus communicates here. It's really important. is the working of the Spirit in the world. What is the Holy Spirit doing in the world? Now in 15, 18 through 25, Jesus speaks about that the world system hates God. It hates us because we are in the world but not of the world. Um, it hated Him without cause and the world system doesn't even, can't find a legitimate reason to hate God but this is the case. So what is the Spirit doing in the midst of a world like our world today? What has He been doing for the last 2,000 years? Jesus speaks specific statement and then he adds some things to this specific statement and so let's talk now about the spirits working in the world look at eight verse eight and when he comes he will convict the world so the world system the people in the world he he will convict the world concerning three things sin righteousness and judgment these sacred words are really important for us. For, they, for Jesus is sharing with us what the Spirit is doing right now in the room today and right now all over the planet. This is what the Spirit's doing. One, He came. Let's just marvel at that reality. Jesus went away and the Spirit came. The Spirit is present in the world. He would definitely come. And when He came, He would do three things that he is continuing to do even in our time. He will convict the world. Let's talk about the, what the word convict means. Not convict, but convict, okay? What does it mean that the Spirit convicts? In the Greek, it means this. It means to present before people facts that are true, to make a case about something, to show that this is the truth of the matter it's kind of like shining a light another meaning definition of this greek word convict is to shine a light on something to show it to be true to illumine something it also means to refute something so if some lie is told about jesus the spirit is at work through the preaching of the word or through a testimony or through talking with another believer um, through apologetics, whatever the case may be, refuting the world's perspective of Christ. This is what the Spirit 
does. And so as the Spirit does this work of convicting, of presenting the truth, the factual truth and convincing of that truth, it illumines the truth about who Jesus is. It refutes the lies about Jesus to highlight the truth about Jesus. The Spirit brings to light the truth to a broken world that must come to personally know who Jesus is. And so the Spirit did this in our lives if salvation has come to us. The Spirit made the case in our lives and makes the case daily in the world that Jesus Christ is the answer. This is His role. He is convicting in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So let's talk about those three things just for a moment. He will convict, Jesus says, of sin. So he will deal with the reality in the world of unbelief. The word convict here is used 18 times in the New Testament. And so his coming into the world, into the lives of believers, we embrace the Great Commission, we tell of Jesus, he uses us to proclaim, he uses all kinds of things, the Spirit does, to convict the lives of unbelievers of their sin. There is no salvation without the conviction of sin. Sin must be dealt with. It's the reason of the cross. And so the Spirit is at work convicting the world of sin. Well, what ultimately is sin? What is sin? Well, Jesus would say here in the next verse that we'll look at is unbelief. Sin is unbelief. Anytime where there is sin, you have unbelief in Jesus. When temptation comes to a believer's life and we embrace the temptation willingly, purposely, there is unbelief in that moment that there's maybe I don't have an out of this and I've got to do this or I, I must do this to feel a certain way or whatever the case may be. In every moment where sin is present, there is unbelief. So ultimately, that's what the case is. And Jesus is going to speak about that in a moment. So the Spirit is at work convicting the world and convincing the world and presenting the truth about Jesus in regard to, first of all, sin. You look around at our world today, and I spent some time yesterday looking at, um, there's this thing out there, I'm not sure how I found it, but I've found it out there where they bring this younger generation together, and they talk about these social issues, and they come and they sit on chairs here, and the other side comes and sits here, and it's very fascinating to hear the, the talk about some of the present things that are going on in our culture and hear the younger generation talk about these things. So the Spirit is consistently at work as people are wrestling with what is true and what's right. And if you were to go to our world, and I watched it yesterday, our world is very concerned about wrong in regard to humanity against humanity. But if you introduce Jesus into the equation, the Father and the Spirit, the world is rarely concerned about wrong against God. It's really concerned about wrong against one another, but it's really concerned about wrong against God. And that second issue, the wrong against God, is the greater issue. Now, the wrong of humanity to humanity is wrong. And what happens there? 
And so the Spirit is at work today, and I'm so thankful for this, that, that Collin County, where we all live, is not reliant on you and I to be at work in all the churches together. We, it's too big of a task. So you know what he's doing today? There are people who hate church, and they're playing disc golf, sending, playing disc golf this morning, or whatever they're doing this morning. Whatever it is they're doing, you know what he's doing? In the midst of their sin, the Spirit is at work in some people's lives, convicting them, even of their sin. And maybe a year from now, maybe six months from now, they will come to faith by relationship with a co-worker, or they'll just show up to church, and they'll come to faith. And all of that began, listen, all of that began not from human means, but because the Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin. What great hope today. We know people, some, some of us know people in really difficult places where it's hard to get the gospel to those places. And you know what the Spirit's doing there? He's convicting people, even there, of the emptiness of their worship and what they are embracing. So He calls people from their lies to the truth And so he convicts of sin. Secondly, he's not just as he convicting people of their sin, but he is is also convincing the world of righteousness. What righteousness? What do people who are convicted of sin need? They need a righteousness. So here's what he does. The Spirit is active at convicting its sin and then convincing people that they need righteousness. So there's only one way to get a righteousness that pleases God and the sin against God, and that is to have Christ's righteousness imputed, given to us, put into our account. So the Spirit's at work convicting the world of sin, but also convincing the world that they need a righteousness, not of their own, but a righteousness that is Christ. And so the Spirit convicts the world of sin, and then He calls them to the work of Christ as the righteous solution to the sin problem of humanity. This is why we can do a lot of we can we can do a lot of things to help the world, but we really never really help the world unless the world comes to know Jesus. It's just temporary solutions that don't last. And so we want to proclaim the truth of Jesus. No other life brings forgiveness but by knowing Jesus. So the Spirit's at work convicting of people's sin and proving and showing them that they need not their righteousness or this righteousness, but they need the righteousness of Christ. And so he is ever at work proving the glory of Christ and his holiness and people's need to trust in his work. Now, there can be conviction But conviction is not equal to conversion. We've all met people who are convicted of something. I know I need to not do this anymore. And you can share the truth of Christ with them. That he will take your sin. He will forgive your sin. And he will take your sin and he will give you his righteousness. And people are convicted of that. But they don't believe. And so so conviction is not the same as conversion. But conviction must be there. If there ever is to be conversion. So here's the last thing that he says here. He will convince the world of its sin, convince the world 
that it needs the righteousness of Christ. And he will convince the world that judgment comes if you don't come to Christ. So the third work of the Spirit informs that there will be judgment if someone does not embrace the righteousness of Christ. What does it look like to be convicted of sin? Here's what it, here's what it looks like. So they're waiting in the upper room, just like Jesus told them to. I'm going to go away, and you wait. And I'm going to send a helper to you to indwell you. He will be with you, in you, and around you. And so they do that. Spirit comes in, blows in the upper room, this room they're waiting in. Tongues of fire settle on them. They go out into the streets and they begin to proclaim the gospel. Peter preaches this powerful sermon. Not in his power, but in the conviction and the work of the Holy Spirit who has just come. They haven't been preaching, by the way, in the streets until now. So now the Spirit comes. And listen what Peter preaches this great sermon. And so he says in Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's shared a lot more. And so verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The people were like, Oh no, what have we done? The Savior came and we wanted him to die. And they were cut to the heart. And so they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what are we to do about this? What are we to do that we have treated Jesus and seen Jesus this way? And so Peter says to them, here's what you do. You repent of what you did and said to Jesus and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the work, Jesus says, that the Holy Spirit is doing in the world right now. So in the room today, even with believers, he's convicting our heart about certain things that we may be doing. Maybe certain attitudes, an unforgiveness towards someone, an addictive thing, whatever the case may be. He convinces the world and convinces his people that that's not what we need. What do we need? We need the righteousness of Christ. And if we don't come to know the righteousness of Christ, then judgment comes. We must turn to Jesus. Last thing this morning, a little bit more detail. So look at 9 through 11. Concerning sin, he gives a little bit more detail. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So let's talk, let's talk just for a moment about these three additions that Jesus gives to what we talked about there. Ultimately, what Jesus says here in verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, sin ultimately is a refusal of the Savior. It is refusing the Savior. So concerning sin... What is the deep sin? He says, because they do not, Jesus says, believe in me. So the sin of all sins is the rejection of a loving Savior. And that sin keeps people separated from being in a relationship with Christ. And so 
So he, he is at work concerning sin because people are refusing to believe in Jesus. People are guilty because they do not believe in Christ. And so the world, in so many ways, um, has no awareness of their need for Christ. And so it takes a supernatural work to happen and take place to bring about salvation. And so he convicts of sin to bring about the result of faith. Let me give you three verses real quick to remind us of this great reality. Again, all over the world today, God is at work in this work. The Father is at work, the Son is at work, the Spirit is at work. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the Father is at work drawing people to Christ. The Spirit, secondly, is at work of of convicting people of their sin and showing them their need in Christ, that they must have Christ's righteousness. And then when salvation comes, that is a work of the Holy Spirit, of birthing new life into people's lives. So the Father draws. The Spirit convicts of sin and shows the necessity for Christ's righteousness. And then the Spirit imparts new life to the convicted sinner. Jesus speaking with Nicodemus in John 3, 5 and following. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So sin is ultimately unbelief. It is a refusal to embrace the Savior, and yet God is at work in a world that lives that way. Father draws. Spirit convicts. Spirit shows Christ's righteousness as the answer. The Spirit brings new life to a convicted sinner. So all over the world today, ultimately why cultures have the issues that they have is because the greatest sin that takes place every day is the rejection and the lack of belief in Jesus as the Savior. And that's why catastrophic things happen and take place relationally and within cultures. So there's the necessity of a supernatural work. And sin, Jesus says here, is a refusal of the Savior and the Spirit's at work in that. Secondly, the Spirit works to affirm the righteousness of Christ. Look at verse 10. Concerning righteousness, what does that mean, this righteousness? Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So the Father sent Jesus to the earth. Why did he send Jesus? To bear our sin, to die in our place, as a satisfactory sacrifice and as a substitutionary sacrifice. Did Christ accomplish the reason he came? Absolutely. So how did Jesus get to go back into heaven where the Father was? Because he is righteous. Because of what he accomplished. He accomplished everything that pleased the Father. And so, so the Spirit works to affirm concerning the righteousness of Christ that he is with the Father interceding in our behalf. He accomplished the work. He sits in a place of power and authority. And he does so because 
of right, the righteousness of Christ. So the cross, the resurrection, and His ascension led Him back to the Father, and they authenticate that Christ's righteousness was perfect. It was absolutely enough. It was pleasing to the Father. And so the Spirit, again, works to show and reveal that the righteousness of Christ is our only hope. We are not saved, by the way, without understanding. So the Spirit brings conviction to our lives at salvation. For me, it was age 17. I saw that my works, my whatever it is that I was trying at that age was not enough to find the peace that I needed. And so the Spirit showed me Christ one night as I listened to the testimonies of people I was going to school with talk about what Christ was doing in their lives. And so I saw my need for a righteousness that was not connected to me that must be grounded in Christ. And on a Sunday night, In Waco, Texas, I became a follower. Because the Father was drawing me, the Spirit convicted me of my sin, showed me my need for righteousness of Christ. And He brought the new life that I needed. It is Christ's righteousness that we need more than anything. So the Spirit brings conviction of our sin for the purpose of allowing an understanding of our need for the righteous work of Christ to be brought and done in our wicked hearts. That's the point, by the way, of Romans chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5 to show that we cannot earn this. We must be given the righteousness of Christ. I'm so thankful for that. I hope you are as well, that this work has been done for us on our behalf. So the Father would only accept a perfect righteousness in His presence, not a partial one. So as Christ ascends and He goes and He sits with the Father and He intercedes on our behalf, it's done because of absolute righteousness. He's the only sacrifice. Lastly, He affirms that the enemy who is in control of the world is judged. Look at verse 11. So concerning, did you notice the three concernings there? Concerning, concerning, concerning. The Spirit is at work convicting concerning these three things. Sin, unbelief, rejection, of refusal of Jesus. Of righteousness, we need His righteousness. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The enemy is already judged by Christ. So the world condemned Christ to the cross and yet their aim of killing them leads to their judgment if they refuse to embrace Him. So Jesus says that that judgment that comes upon the world will also come upon Satan and all those who reject Jesus, that same judgment will come because they believe exactly as Satan believes about who Jesus is. And there is great scriptural evidence of the defeat of the world system and Satan. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Colossians 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 2, 14. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He's destroyed the works of the devil. 1 John 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, John says, was to destroy the works of the devil. So for the church, for us today in this place, for the people of God in the world today, great life, great victory, great mercy, great forgiveness, great freedom, the hope of heaven is found in Christ, and this is the role of the Spirit, convicting of sin, showing that we need the righteousness of Christ, and showing us that the ruler of this world has been judged. He has been defeated. For Satan in the world, though, great defeat, lack of mercy, and everlasting doom are what awaits them. So when God judges, He judges according to His righteousness, not man's righteousness. And so the Spirit is at work telling the world that there will be justice in regard to God's purposes in the world and in regard to Christ. And so the Holy Spirit's judgment that Jesus speaks about here, is not merely on the world, but it is also on Satan himself. And so as we share the message of Jesus in the power of the Spirit, we join with what the Spirit is already doing. He gets the credit. And so the message speaks about we have sinned. There is one who paid the penalty for our sin. And he gives us his righteousness as he takes our sin. And the judgment doesn't cover us anymore because we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus. So I don't, I don't know how today we're done. I don't know how today landed on you this morning. But this is very important stuff. Really important stuff. Again, this is Jesus walking with the 11, sharing with them Man, I've got great news. It's, it's actually to your good that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Spirit doesn't come and do this great work of convicting the world of sin, showing that the righteousness of Christ is the answer, and that the world is judged if they refuse to embrace and follow Jesus. Let's pray.